It is my pleasure and honor to introduce to you this evening Dr. Leslie Palomero from the University of Calgary. Oh, what a lovely sound. The sound of the cell phone very well. A lovely sound. We were reminiscing and realizing that we first met some. This is live. Um, we first met about 30 years ago uh, when I was a student at the Nyingma Institute up the hill. And uh, Dr. Kawamura was one of the august faculty who I looked up to with great reverence and devotion and who was traveling, I only learned now, after 30 years or more, uh, who was driving his Datsun from Saskatoon to come to the Nyingma Institute about once every three months to teach for a period of days and then drive all the way back. Um, at that point, uh, Dr. Kawamura and Dr. Herbert Gunther were the leading uh, members of the Nyingma Institute faculty, and it was um, immensely beneficial to me that he was willing to make the personal sacrifices involved in driving so far uh, to come to Berkeley to provide instruction to us. Uh, I jokingly said today that um, what little I know about Yogacara Buddhism is his responsibility. The knowledge part, the little part, is my responsibility. Uh, he's a leading expert with an international reputation in Yogacara Buddhism. Uh, and his topic for this evening is the importance of self in Buddhism, a uh, typically provocative title. And um, he also reminded me today that independent and critical thinking is very important in Buddhism. And I look forward to his presentation tonight as an instance of that. Dr. Kalamur. Thank you. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank you all for being here this evening. Um, if I can live up to even one-tenth of what he tries to tell you who I am, uh, I'll be very happy. <laughs> um, but uh, I do thank uh, the Institute of Buddhist Studies for making this opportunity possible. I understand that, that this is a Numata lecture series lecture, and I was being told that there's three kinds of lecture series in the Numata. There's the biennial one in which the lecturer is invited for some time and comes maybe three or four months at a time, is it, to IBS? And this is uh, very important. And then they have uh, the second kind, which is uh, the, uh, the in-between biennials, where they have outstanding Buddhist scholars come to give lectures. And then they have the third type, if they have money left over, uh, they invite somebody from North America. So here I am, the third type. <laughs> they have a little bit of money left over. <laughs> And it uh, it's, it's must, mustn't be very much because they can't pay my airfare. So the Buddhist Church of America is picking that up. So I must be the third type, I concluded. But that's just a joke. I, I do uh, uh, honor my... Uh, I like to uh, uh, 
say that I'm very happy to be here with you. And um, my, my style of lecturing, uh, unlike many of the perhaps Numata chair lectures you have heard, is to come and sort of wrap with you and, and discuss with you. I do this in my classrooms at the university. Um, when I first got my PhD and went to lecture, I would start with a class of maybe 30 students in about two weeks, there'll be five there. Um, and I couldn't figure this out for several years. And it's in recent years that I have finally figured it out. Uh, people are not um, used to uh, being lectured at a high level of information. As a, P, uh, a new PhD student, you see, I tried to give my thesis over the one term or something, and it was just too much information. Um, it was good for me because it made me prepare and study. Uh, but I began to realize that that kind of studying I could spread over 20 years of teaching <laughs> and it would work out, sort of balance out nicely for the students. So um, having been at the university for 30 years, now it's even thinner. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I may disappoint you. Now, I don't know what your, what your background is in Buddhism or anything, but I am going to uh, assume uh, this evening that you have at least uh, an interest in, in Buddhist studies. And I am going to be a bit controversial perhaps to traditional scholars of Buddhism uh, at times because um, when I lectured on, in Hong Kong last year, I could hear, well, that's not the way the books say it. <laughs> and. Uh, I agree, that's not the way the book said, but as, as um, Dr. Payne has tried to point out, I see one of my tasks in being a professor of any institution like the University of Calgary is to get the people to reflect on what's going on. So if I can accomplish that, that you go home with a, God, that was a stupid lecture, wasn't it? I, I, I'm, I accomplished my purpose because at least, <laughs> at least now I have you rapping with the subject matter I have try to convey. Now, um, the topic this evening is uh, the concept of self or the self in Buddhism. And I purposely use the self in Buddhism because for the most part, I, I believe that when you read Buddhist books, the, the real concept or the more uh, traditional way of talking about Buddhism is the no-self or the non-self. And that gave me some concern because if there is no self and there, there is no uh, non-self, non then what the heck are we doing, <laughs> you know, studying Buddhism? Or who is it that does it if indeed there is no self? So although the uh, translation of no self is quite accurate, and I don't want to ever defy that, and that is indeed a very literal translation of what is going on in the text. I wonder, oftentimes, whether Siddhartha wanted us to get rid of ourselves. And one of the easiest ways is perhaps try to do what the truck driver did the other day on the, on the freeway, only do it with your car this time. And um, you know the chance of you getting out of the car is less than the truck because the truck has lots of space and, and the car is much tighter, so you might get rid of yourself much faster that way 
than, than you, you would uh, normally with sitting in meditation or something, you know, wasting all that time in some sense. So um, I want you to know that um, what I want to say tonight is that I'm not, I hopefully will not end up defying or contradicting what the texts are saying, but perhaps adding a new way of looking at that whole issue of self in Buddhism. And um, if, if you find that I'm, I'm you know, way off base, uh, my, my, also my uh, style in lectures is that you put up your hand and ask, stop, you know, <laughs> stop me and we'll have a little discussion and we'll go on or maybe discuss for the rest of the night. Uh, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, this is the usual style. Now, uh, because um, I would like to put some uh, content into this, I uh, hope these things work. They usually don't. <laughs> uh, the word self uh, that we see in English books is usually a translation from the Indian tradition of Atman uh, as uh, a word. Now, Atman, we have to understand that Buddhism in India began around 500 years before the Common Era. So, this, I think, you, you say, well, this is nothing new. At that time in India, we find that the Indian tradition has gone through various phases from the Vedic period through to the Upanishadic period and into the Sutric period or Sutra period. So we're finding that from a very uh, animistic form of religion, like almost worshipping fire and trees as if they're really uh, some kind of divine beings, we're coming into a more philosophical tradition with the Upanishads. And in the Upanishads, what we are getting now is kind of an intellectual discussion about what all of this is about. And as we enter the Sutric period, we get a sort of a, a questioning, more so than even the Upanishadic period, of what this is all about. And so in the sutras, we find uh, uh, various kinds of different sutras coming forth in which if we take uh, the Yoga Sutra, for example, as an example of the period that's being represented, then what we're finding is that the religious um, traditions of India is being sort of put into the context of what's going on in society more, especially with the whole question of Varna or the caste. Caste may not be the correct translation, but I'm going to use it. The Varna system where people are being segregated out into various layers. And as you know, in India, uh, the, the, there's a very strict uh, system of Varna where we have the Brahmins at the top, Kshaitriya, the Vaishyas, and then the Sudras at the bottom. You, you, you know, this is all hat to you, I'm sure. So we have all of this kind of thing going on. And in the midst of all of this discussion from the philosophical to the sociological almost, we might say the transformation is taking place, we get superimposed on this various um, thinkers, shall I say, or reflectors, I don't know if we can use that word, ones who reflect 
on what's going on in the sutric period. And so we get Mahavira, for example, uh, coming out with a giant system. And then we get Siddhartha coming out with what we call the Buddhist system. So both of these great teachers, the Mahavira and Siddhartha, are, are not giants, nor are they Buddhists at this point. They are seekers of some kind of religious tradition, but at that point we can't say Jainism is there or Buddhism is there. So they are, for want of a better way to express it, they are Brahmanic persons of Brahmanic tradition, and they are people of what we would call today Hindus. So Siddhartha, at this point, is a Hindu person. And if the historical information we get about Siddhartha to some extent is correct, I don't consider all information talked about Siddhartha in any of the historical texts of Buddhism to be all correct. If we accept some of this stuff to be correct, then it seems reasonable that the caste system or the Varna system was in place and he was considered to be a Kshatriya class. Okay? Now, a Kshatriya class, according to Hindu tradition, is best represented, I believe, in the story of the Bhagavad Gita, where Arjuna is supposed to fight and sees across the way his own fellow family members, his cousins and so on. So Siddhartha, being a Kshatriya, must have had that kind of background in himself too. And as he looked across the society, I believe that he must have seen the discrepancies between these groups of people and wondered why. And at the same time, he probably wondered what this, uh, how can I put it, the frustration or the pain that some of these people were going through the joy and the great uh, recognition some of these people are getting, what accounts for all of this? And so he reflected on things like this, and to what extent his uh, life was as the Buddhist historical information gives us, is true or not, I'm not sure, but at least he must have been a person of some concern for humanity. And because of this concern, he wanted to investigate more and more about what was going on. And perhaps one of the biggest concerns he had was that why is it if in the Hindu tradition, which he belonged to, was one in which the adherent of the tradition was trying to get back to the highest possible divine state, which is Brahman, why, in going through that process of many cycles of birth and death, the samsaric cycle, why was it that they were unhappy that they might get there? Because it was known in the Hindu tradition that you had to go through these samsaric cycles 
to ward off any bad karma and so on. Otherwise, if you had good karma, you wouldn't have been born where you were. So it must have been of some concern to him, how does one overcome such frustration? And what he began to realize, I believe, is that within the Hindu or this, this kind of Indian tradition, there was a belief that every individual had something very concrete about that individual, which made that person belong to a certain caste, and so, as a consequence, had that life to live up. And can you imagine being a sudra or somebody maybe lower, say a Vaishya, a merchant or something like this, having to go through many, many lifetimes of recycling of life to somehow get to a higher, higher spiritual plane. That the incentive a person would have to try to get there would be almost nil. There'd be almost a giving up, you know. Even if it took only 100 kalpas, all right, to realize what a kalpa of time, does everybody know what a kalpa of time is like? There's no need to explain kalpa, right? That the word a long time doesn't describe it. Okay? <laughs> and I'm sure you are very familiar with the, my, my uh, expression is the rock of Gibraltar Kalpa. <laughs> and I, I, I tell my class uh, that the Kalpa is like the rock of Gibraltar Kalpa, which isn't in Indian literature, by the way. And this is the Kalpa where uh, angel sweeps over the rock of Gibraltar every 1,000 years, creates a, a current of air movement, and when the rock of Gibraltar finally disappears, it's one small kalpa. Okay? And then you need 3,000 small kalpas to make a middle kalpa. You need 3,000 more of those kalpas to make a large kalpa. You need 3,000 more of those kalpas to make a real kalpa. And then they add to add insult to injury, so to speak, infinite numbers of 10,000 kalpas. Okay? And when you multiply infinite by 10,000, it, it becomes a fairly large number. So what chance does anybody have to become a Brahmin? Now, if, if we analyze this whole structure more sociologically, why would Brahmins want to do that? You know, if, if we talk in modern church language, why would a priest want to make sure everybody under him never becomes a priest? And that's, you know, that's the sociological. My colleague, uh, who is now in New Mexico, uh, <laughs> Richard Hayes has written a paper on karma. I don't know if you read it, George. Have you? Uh, I think you were George. Bill. Bill, sorry. Uh, have you read? Uh, uh, no. He's written a, an interesting paper on karma, which um, in which he indicates the reason that karma 
which in Buddhist text means simply action, good, bad, or neutral. Okay? It, the, the Buddhist text, at least in its very basic form, does not put a moral value on this action. Okay? It's simply good things produce good things, bad things will produce bad things, neutral things will produce neutral things. Now, when you say it doesn't put you know, ethical values on things, I've already used ethical terms, good, bad, and neutral. But wholesome, unwholesome, healthy, unhealthy, all right? Meaning that in the Buddhist context, a healthy action, producing a healthy result, means that you're going to be contented, peaceful with yourself. Whereas an unhealthy one, it means that you're going to be upset with yourself. And a neutral one is one in which neither one of these outcomes may arise. So why would someone, a system like Buddhism, which begins with this kind of explanation of karma, end up with the Vinayas for monks and lay people? Where do we get the concept of Vinayas in the Buddhist tradition? And we get that merely because we have qualified beings or people or selves as being of certain sociological levels. Okay? So if you're a monk, you get two monks together, one becomes a leader. Okay? Always. This is sociologically happens. Husband and wife, one is always the boss. Right? Get a family together, somebody in that unit is a boss. Get a society together, somebody in that unit, unit becomes the boss. When you naturally and sociologically get this structure up, appearing, you have to have rules to make sure you stay boss. Okay? And therefore, it seems reasonable that even if a monk is older, if a younger aged person is a monk longer, right, that longness of being a monk, the period of time makes him superior to someone older. Of course that would make me, as a monk, more superior than others. And if you want the society to set this up, then it's like saying you can't be an ordained person until you've gone through these levels, and so on. But when you look through the Buddhist text, one often wonders why or how is it that these Vinaya rules have anything to do with enlightenment? Have you ever watched films? I shouldn't. This is not, I hope, uh, uh, what do you call it, politically incorrect to speak this way. But in, 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 in Thailand, for example, the monks, you know, they expect the nuns to do everything for them. It doesn't matter if a nun's been older, a nun for many, many years, properly ordained and so on. That doesn't count. You know, women are just lower. Why do we get that kind of sociological structure? 
it's certainly not an expression of loving kindness or compassion or understanding in the sense of understanding interdependency. It seems that the self, as reflected upon, is seen as some kind of important entity in the tradition. And Siddhartha seemed to have said that non-self is where we're headed for. So if that's the case, then these poor monks, you know, are either not Buddhists or misunderstanding and misrepresenting Buddhism. Now, I don't know if we could say that of the monks in the Buddhist Church of America, you know, this uh, Numata system of Buddhism or not, but reflect. Why would this whole area come up? So, in spite of the fact that Siddhartha began his tradition from understanding that because human beings have this sociological tendency to punctuate themselves as something very, very important. This punctuation of self caused that person to undergo dissatisfaction. Okay? And not only that, once the person began to think of the self as some concrete, non-changing entity, then there was no way in which that person could be shifted from thinking that because to think so was very comforting. And you give comfort to human beings and they're very, very stuck with it. You know, we're married, we have girlfriends, or we have boyfriends, or we have good friends, or whatever. And we're very comfortable that this is the way it should be. Well, in fact, those who don't have boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives are really better off. Now, don't quote me for saying that. <laughs> but isn't that what Siddhartha is saying? That if you can get rid of all of these attachments, then you will not be so concerned about the self. or what we might call the wrong self. So I'm going to do a little bit of, uh, how can I put it, philology, if you don't mind. So, Atman, this is translated into English as self. In uh, Tibetan, they say this is Dag. Okay. And people ask me, why do you pronounce that as dag when there's a bu and gu at the or is it buga dag? Well, I'm not from Lhasa. <laughs> In Lhasa, I believe they do pronounce it budag. Help you spell it. But anyway, dag atman or rang. This is also self. Like uh, rang 
is used in uh, self as me. Anyway, when we look at the original, assuming Sanskrit to be the original, this word here is closest to that kind of thinking in Tibetan. Okay? But Tibetans also use, sorry for doing this because I often can't read my, uh, I often can't go from Romanization to seeing the word in Tibet. Which is really a translation of Putgala in, in Sanskrit. And I'm playing with these words right now because I hope things will become clear. But Putgala is considered translate as self too. So when you're reading Buddhist text and you see self in the text, you really don't know if you're reading about Pudgala or Atman. Okay? When you read the English. And this I want to caution you when you read English text. Don't assume that the word you're reading in English refers to a particular term in Sanskrit or Tibetan back. These two terms are very interesting because in order to translate the negative an, okay, so we get no self into Tibetan, they say that may Now you know this is self. So may means not. But you know, in English, we have the worst language in the world to discuss anything important. <laughs> All right? When you say isn't in English, what the heck do you mean? Do you mean isn't? Like there isn't cows here? Or do you mean isn't in the sense that there isn't devils in the world? Okay, when you say isn't, what are you talking about? That there are no cows here isn't? Or that there are no devils in the world isn't? They're quite different because in some sense we could imagine at least cows being in the world. And right now there isn't. But can you imagine that there are devils in the world and right now there isn't? So Tibetans, good minds, they said me to say isn't as a descriptor. Okay? As a descriptor. And they said may, M E D. Not as a descriptor, but as a real negation of any possible existence. Okay? So, when they say, that may, you could look under the pillows, under your bed, wherever, huh? look up into the sky, 
you're not going to find it because there, there isn't, there just isn't. Right? The Tibetans could have said that mean isn't, and they do say it, that it's, it's not that I'm talking about. <laughs> okay? It's just not, it's just not the topic. So, they chose to translate Anatman this way, that there is nowhere we can find Anatman. But if you read some through other Buddhist texts of Tibetan language, they say, Pugala, how can I put it? They speak of the anatman of the God. Okay? So we read in Buddhist text that the God is the self. You know, self, 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 self. And then suddenly we get in the same text that we're reading, which in which Putgala was translated self, 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 self. We read Putkala Anatman. So now, if we have been translating this as a self, then we have to translate this as no self, right? So we have to translate this no self of self. Right? Because we have Putkala Anatman coming up in the text. So, I began to wonder, because from the Sanskrit it's very difficult to understand what this kind of Putgala self would be against an Atman self. And I began to analyze the Tibetan word, Gan. How can I translate this? Something like bloated? <laughs> Is that spelled right? Bloated? And Zag. Finished. Right? So then I sat and wondered what is loaded finished mean? And I got it one day when I was reading about the emotions. The idea is this at some time we become inflated, bloated beings. Okay? And suddenly somebody puts a needle in there, we fall apart. Right? So we, we, we blow it up and get destroyed. We blow it up and get destroyed. Okay? So that's what a person is all about. So now I'm beginning to translate Pukkala not as self, but person. A person is one who blows up gets destroyed, blows up and gets destroyed. But don't worry, there's nothing to it. Okay? Although we are people who go around bragging about what we can do and so on, and then somebody finds out and then puts the needle into our bragging balloon and bursts it, and we fall to pieces, don't worry about it. There's nothing there anyway. Okay? 
From the very beginning, there was nothing there. So this Pukala Anatman, or Naratmiya, is the way we literally, somehow explains that the Atman that we think is real is nothing more than a floating extinguishing process. So we have our highs and then we have our lows and we have our highs and we have our lows. But the, the original Indian tradition in which this word is used is, is a word that is used in contrast to Brahman. And I'm sure that Siddhartha must have gone crazy trying to figure out this relationship. Because Brahman is an eternal, unchanging substance. Atman is an eternal, unchanging substance. And accordingly, two eternal, unchanging substances go back and forth and change. Okay? So this must be very, very confusing for Siddhartha, who I consider to be a very reasonable person. Of course, that's a Buddhist bias. Okay, so Brahman and Atman are not the same. And yet they are both the eternal, unchanging substance. And if these two are the same, then why all the confusion and all the upsetting experiences, why is it that human beings go through this when they are essentially the Atman? Now, I'm, I'm a, not a nice person in this sense. In my lectures at the university, because we tried to somehow contextualize this within the Western culture, this Western Eastern is problematic. But anyway, uh, shall I say in California? <laughs> or if I'm in Alberta, I would say in Alberta or Calgary. I say, you know, one of the issues that we look at this as Calgarians, and we say, ah, those dumb Indian people, you know, they couldn't figure this one out. They think, you know, that this is somehow great. Imagine the contradiction they have here of Brahman and Atman. Okay? They, if they're both the same, then why bother with the current discussion to the top? So I tell them, if we saw the self that's in the world as our soul, would you consider this an unchanging permanent substance? Mm -hmm. If we think of Brahman as God, would you think of this as one unchanging substance? Mm -hmm. Would you say they're the same? Uh-uh. I said, well, you just think like the Indians do. Right? <laughs> you people have just criticized the Indian people for not being able to think straight. And yet, when you people think between God and the soul, you have the same way of thinking. Furthermore, is it correct, because I'm not a Christian, I asked the question, is it correct that a Christian's life is to die, for the purpose of dying, to be born into God's kingdom? 
Does it mean then that when a person dies and was a good Christian, that they will become into the kingdom of God? They will get to the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Is this what people, Christians, live for? Mm-hmm. Then I ask, what's all the crime? You should be out dancing. They got there, you know? I'm still back here, but that person got there is now one with God. Okay? This is what we live for. All our lives we've been doing good things to get there, right? So why not get up and dance? What's all this crying about? And the students say, well, you know, that's right, but... (laughs) So I said, but what? No, but I'm not, I don't think you're supposed to be doing that. You know, you Buddhists might think that, but you're not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> right. So, what I'm trying to point out here is that what we consider to be contradictions in world religions of others, if you look closely at your own, you find the same contradiction. But anyway, so the self is here, and as I have tried to point out, the Tibetans have used two possible languages to express that. The Chinese came out with the word Ren. Okay? What? For the Atman. The word Ren incorporates both of these meanings. Okay? And it incorporates the sense of person and also incorporates the person of soulness. I think. Is that okay? I'm not a Jap- Japologist. Japaneseologist. <laughs> so it seems that, or I'm not a sinologist, it seems that the Chinese had it right in this sense, that they meant both the person or personality and the actual entity. Now, they had it also right by using uh, is it uh, <laughs> the uh, Chinese character Wo? Is it Mu? Mu? I forgot the Chinese pronunciation. Huh? Yes. Against Yo. This. This Chinese character is interesting because they have produced two existential words, which I call existential words, as existence and non-existence. So when they saw Anatman in the Sanskrit text like Shonsan, he translated this word as uh, Uren. So, once you do that, he is saying there is, this doesn't exist. Because uh, I think the Chinese use zai or something like this to express presence. Okay? And yo, they express this, yeah, there is. So, the Chinese understood the negation on Parchman as 
not exist. Just like the Tibetans understood it as not exist. This brings me to the title, Non-Self. If indeed Atman is referring to the self in some sense of Pudgala or personality, then maybe Atman should be translated self in that context. But we have to always go back to the Indian tradition and understand that the Atman is a word used in contrast to Brahman. And what Siddhartha is negating in his expression of non-self is not the self as we are here today. So we don't want to make the mistake of one of the Hindu ashram leaders who happened to have a Buddhist at the ashram that week. And every day at lunchtime or dinner time, everybody in the ashram gathered around the table, the Buddhist sat down, everybody got food and the Buddhist didn't. And so the Buddhist, after about three days, you know, even tolerance, patience, all the things that we Buddhists have, run out. Right? And so the Buddhist said to the ashram leader, how come I don't get fed? <laughs> and the answer was, because you're not here. <laughs> right? You Buddhists believe you're not here. Now, that kind of concept of self is even present in Buddhists. That somehow they're supposed to get rid of themselves. What you're supposed to get rid of, according to Siddhartha's teaching of Anatman, I believe, is this biased belief or opinionated view that you are permanent and unchanging. I believe that's what this word Atman meant, Anatman meant to Siddhartha. He didn't tell you to go commit suicide or jump in the lake or get rid of yourself, but rather to come to the realization that what you think is Pudgala or self, kind of a personality thing, is in fact a series of inflation and depression. And that all the inflation and depression is going on all the time, there's really nothing to it. There's no Atman behind it. There's no eternal principle behind anything. Because if there were an eternal principle, then certainly there could be no changes. Whatever is eternal doesn't change. And if the self is eternal and unchanging, then we would not undergo birth, life, and death. Nor will we have happiness and sadness. Because once you are one of them, you won't change. So the normal passage of existence, which is this inflation-deflation process, 
goes on so long as we are alive. But one day it will come to an end because just as inflation must become depression, depression must become inflation, change takes place. What was does no, no longer, what was no longer exists or continues to exist. In the same way, the human being will die eventually. And when one dies, there is nothing that's going to stick around afterwards. Because what you thought was life had nothing to it anyway. Now that's a very sobering thought, if you take it seriously. And in Buddhism, it seems that the Buddhists must take this seriously. Now, as you know, as time went on in Buddhist history, things don't pan out that way. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Buddhist services and so on happening. Now, I want to be clear on this. As an academic, I present this to you. Okay? As a believer, I may have to change my tone and stories a bit. Because, you know, and as, especially as a minister, one would have to start shifting things. And that's where we get into all kinds of problems of Buddhist traditions. If we want to keep Buddhism as Siddhartha understood and therefore became an enlightened being, then there's no need for politics, sociology, or things like this. But, then, but as it stands, because Buddhism became an institutionalized entity, and in becoming that, it started to have its own idiosyncrasies, we end up with what we have as Buddhism. Now, I don't know if I dare go out on this limb, but I shall, because this is academic, okay? I say to my students, please become critical. Please reflect. What do you think? Why is it that in Tibet, Buddhism enters Tibet around the 7th century common era? I think it was around the 14th, wait a minute, maybe 15th century common era. We get a dilemma popping up. The Dalai Lama, and I sound sacrilegious in all this when I speak this way because I'm speaking academically. When the Dalai Lama pops up, right, he pops up as a representative of Genghis Khan, actually. Because we are now in what in Chinese history is known as the Yuan Dynasty. It is the time when all of Asia is Mongolian folk. And because the Khan brothers, as they call them, were able to conquer all of Asia, in spite of the fact that they were excellent horsemen, riders, they couldn't govern a country if you don't try. So they picked out in China, mainland China, some delegate who they named 
as to be the representative, government representative, to run China. And then Tibet, they picked out a monk to be the political boss, so to speak, of all of Tibet. This position in Tibet, unlike China, happened to be ecclesiastical. Consequently, the Gelugpa tradition, which His Holiness represents, became the political religious body. As somehow time goes on, this position takes on a religious flavor stronger, but not necessarily at the cost of the political. And as this religious tradition gets stronger and stronger, somehow we get the Indian Hindu reincarnation theory coming back into Tibet. Hindu, okay? In Hindu, you must be reborn many times to finally get to become Brahman. So, somehow this sneaks in, and this is my theory, okay? So, I could be taken to task on it. And the Tibetans think, wait a minute, if we're going to set up a reincarnation theory, we can't do it just one time with one life. So we need more lives ahead of this guy. So at least when you're starting something two years behind, it's pretty far behind. So they pick two years or two lifetimes backwards. And so they declare the first Dalai Lama as the third. So we're in the 14th today, which is actually the 11th, right? Because the first two were puppets. And this person has been reincarnating from that time onwards. Given this system, my question is, what reincarnates? What is it that is the ongoing dilemma? But we don't have to make it on such a high plane. You take Chinese Buddhism, you take Japanese Buddhism, and they have you know, various kinds of services so that these souls of these dead people will finally get to the right place. Okay. But then that criticism I just placed on Dalai Lama, I, I use that because you know uh, people understand that he reincarnates. If you if you re reason this way, and this is purely academic, please underline. <laughs> if you reason from an academical critical point of view, it seems that reincarnation is not a possible theory of Buddhism. And people say, but it says in the books. I agree. It says in the books. We even have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where we walk the person through for 49 days. Okay? We have all of these texts. We have the same structure in Sino-Japanese Buddhism. K. 
can't deny it. One of the reasons why the Buddhist Church of America is here because people keep dying and they want 49-day services. Right? Uh, but, you know, somehow that doesn't ring a bell. So either the Buddhist Churches of America, I'll pick on them because they're, you know, for their territory. Uh, either the Buddhist Church of America has to concede to the fact that Siddhartha was just wrong and the Buddhism that we need to have is the kind that's Hinduism. Okay? They're going to have to concede to that where we have a soul, Atman, that goes on and on and on and one day it will be released. Or, and therefore Siddhartha was totally wrong, or we're going to have to say Siddhartha was correct. We better start thinking differently. Now, I'm not going to say which way the British Church of America should go, one way or the other. Academically, I have the problem of thinking that they would keep doing it. So they'll find a way, I'm sure, to handle this, even academically. Because that's what Buddhist history, Buddhist history has been. Always a way to figure out what the academic tells them to somehow bring it back into the social level. So I uh, want to point out that this Atman that Siddhartha at least wanted to talk about was certainly not you and I as sort of Putgalas. But in, in, in spite of the fact that we may you know, become bloated and pierced and bloated and pierced constantly, in spite of that fact, the self, as you and I know it, is here. Now, by the way, without that possibility of some being present, now I sound like Heidegger, but <laughs> being present, okay? Without some kind of being present, which if you analyze what that really means, it means I, my body, is here. And there is no being present, I don't know if Heidegger says this, that excludes my existence. Right? There's no use talking about being that is not me with any significance. There's no, no significance about talking about somebody else's being. This, this is just senseless and totally absurd. But when we want to talk about being, we want to talk about, in my case, me, in your case, hopefully, you. That's the only place, that is the only point where being can take place. And in order to understand what Siddhartha gained in his enlightenment of understanding Anatma, this me, this person, has to somehow become a worthy vessel, in some sense, okay, of being able to reflect upon this vessel in a correct, honest way. Which means to understand that after all, I am nothing, anything, essentially. From that perspective, I'm going to jump to Yoga Chara for a minute. 
We as living entities are systems. Okay? We're not concrete beings in any sense. We are a system. A system always takes some kind of bodily form or some kind of manifested form. But we are a system. The system, according to Yogacara, consists of our being here, present. And this being present is always a psychological being. It is a biological being by all means, but it is also a psychological being. By psychological being, I don't mean necessarily a thinking discursive being, but a psychological. For example, have you ever noticed that if you plant a seed in the ground, try it, and keep watering over here, about a foot away, okay? And maybe give it enough water just to keep it alive. The roots will come out this way to the water. And at the same time, of course, the sprout will come up. So you have to find it. How the heck do you know to do, to do that? Okay? That's what I mean by psychological. It's not unusual for plants to send their root system out across the road, under the pavement, over to the other yard to get water. And if you dig on the other side, there are no roots. Right? You take an orange, and if I ask you, here's an orange, how many envelopes are in here? And I like to say, well, as an example, there are ten. And you say, ah, so we peel the orange, and there are ten. Ah, that was luck. Try another. Okay, so take another orange. Examine it, and I said, there are 12 in this one. And you open it up, and there are 12. How do you know? Well, there's nothing mystical or magical about this. All you have to know is how a being survives. Because what is an orange? Have you ever analyzed an orange? <laughs> okay, you're going to be analyzed. Why don't you analyze an orange? You will realize that an orange is nothing more than a cellular envelope with a stem on it. But in one of these pods, so to speak, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these cellular envelopes all coming up here. Have you ever noticed? Take orange part carefully. Each one of these pods sends out to the place where it matches the tree and comes to one point here. So all you have to do is take that little lid off and count the points. If you look at it carefully, there will be points, like that. And just count the points, and that's how many envelopes are going to be inside there. Every time you'll be right. 
play magic. No, be a magician. Be a great super, super, what they call super knowledge person. Yeah, Abhijinya. The third eye. Okay. All you have to know is the principle of the thing. There's nothing magical or important about this. The fact that you're nothing. All you have to know is the principle of the thing. And there won't be nothing. There will be nothing supernatural or natural about being nothing. Okay? It's just as simple as that. So what we cannot do is become opinionated or biased in how the universe is, because the universe has certain principles it functions by. But those principles are not absolute, because they can shift. But so long as this is a living entity, it's going to try to stay alive. So we must begin with we, me, as a living entity, to understand anatta. Okay? And Yogacara went in to figure out, I don't know if you've ever made it a concern, but the Yogacharans made it a concern as to how is it that the mind could come to the conclusion of something like how does it come to this conclusion? Let us assume we have six senses. This, this is the skin, um, skin is the sense uh, of contact or something, okay? something like this. Let's assume we have these six senses. The eyes see color form. And it's interesting, we have two words, color form. Science, Indians only have one form, word, rupa. Whatever its form has color. Bring me a colorless form. Or bring a color without form. Can't do it. So, already we've been deceiving ourselves in English. Ears, we have sound. Actually, we have waves. Because the ear doesn't hear sound. it's, It's really one of these things. Contact. Nose, I'll, I'll put smell, but I don't mean you smell or stink. It functions that way. Mouth, taste, that's a tongue, taste. And the skin touches. And the mind discriminates ideas. Did you agree? 
when the eye sees color form, what, what, how does it get eye me or mine? When the nose smells fragrance, how does it get eye me or mine? When the mouth tastes something, how does it get me, I, me, or mine? Has it occurred to you with six senses you can't get a concept of me? Has it? I mean, yes or no? <laughs> That's mine. So then you might consider this, the fact that this touches something and makes a feeling, okay? This, this becomes somehow the object of this. Okay? Okay. So let's say skin touches, you get feeling. Mouth taste, you have good taste, bad taste. No smells, you have bad smell, good smells. Sound wave hits, you have pleasant, unpleasant. Color form, beautiful, unbeautiful, whatever. And all of these information is fed to your conscious mind. Where do you get eye? When you look at this hand, how do you know it's my hand? <laughs> because it's stuck to my body. How <laughs> it was my body. You know, I, I'm asking this side. How do we get that? Obviously. What, what, what about you know wants and desires? You know, so, uh, yeah, where do you get those? Uh, with I mean, with if the eye color. Yeah, no. And the uh, ears, here's, you know, the, the eyes don't see desires. Right. The eyes don't hear, the ears don't hear <laughs> desire. Nose don't smell desire. Mouth doesn't taste desire. Skin doesn't touch desire. And all the information you get from all your senses come to your consciousness. And when those senses, information, have nothing to do with desire, how do you get desire? sense of self. Even those, How? I should say even, those people too. Yeah. Right? How? Has it ever, ever occurred to you that this is a problem when the biggest thing in Buddhism is to overcome the self or attachment to the self? So why, why would Buddhism talk about attachment or attachment to self if you can't even get this from your senses. So you mean this heavily disabled sense of self is closer to uh, Atman? No, no, I don't mean that. Okay. It's, 
the, the concept of self that this person who is somehow, um, how can I put it, uh, not with all, with all the possible possibilities there, will be a sense of self that's different because it doesn't have those things involved. But still it has a sense of me. If you take an amoeba, I believe it has a sense of self. You take an ant, I believe, or, or some kind of little animal, I believe it has a sense of self. I, I believe that anything, any living entity which wishes to continue to live, and there is no entity I can think of that is quite contented to die. <laughs> I believe that any living organic organism has this sense of self. But how can you get it? This was a problem for Vasubandhu Asanga, people like this. And so in order to respond to this, they came to this obvious conclusion. Six senses are not enough. A living organism must have more than six senses. So they added what you kind of pointed to, a kind of a consciousness whose business it was to take all the information taken here, because whatever is happening here is also being taken in to what we might call the mind or consciousness. Whatever is going on there is taken in, even though what's going on here is happening in this body. Okay. In other words, the eyes see color form and so on. But if you push your eyes long enough, you know, like hard, you'll start seeing things that are not really out there and the eyes are still functioning, okay? And so on. So it added a seventh one called manas, whose, whose function was manana, which means literally doing manas, <laughs> okay? And the doing manas was explained by Asanga through his meditation, that this doing manas was a doing with the body as its object, right? And what we might call in terms of ordinary language, self a reflection on the self by self. But there's no concept of self yet. The eighth one is called alaya vijnana. And there's various translations you could have for this, one of which is uh, storehouse consciousness, which is very bad, in my opinion. Uh, the other is something like the foundation of all that's possible. But the easiest one to understand for ordinary people, I think, is the body as consciousness. Okay. 
the whole body as a conscience. So we don't get into the problem anymore of having to separate the body and mind. The body as an organism is a conscious being. And I don't mean being in the sense of some substantive self, but be hyphen ing. So this body in which all of this, these functions take place becomes the final object of the basis for thinking about a self. Because we had no organ that would take that body as its object. And that body as its object could not be possible without a body present. Do you understand? If you are not here, there's nothing just talking about your body, if you're not existing. So this Alaya Vijnana, which has been translated as storehouse consciousness and so on, is really my body. Or I, I use the word my here to indicate that it's not somebody else's body we're talking about. And once you get into the my body situation, then for the first time you have what Siddhartha has been concerned with. Who am I? Without this body, that question is a ridiculous question. Now, flip to the religious bit. When one realizes the preciousness of body in order to become enlightened, Because without this, there's no sense. When one realizes the preciousness of body with respect to your own process of becoming enlightened, then one can quickly realize that there cannot be a body without all other bodies. Do you follow me? In English literature or somewhere, they talk about a person is not an island unto oneself. You have to be in the context of other bodies to be a body. That's the only way you can be a body. So then you can begin to realize that your body or your being present or your, your state of being is totally reliant on all other possible things in the universe. And there you start getting the dimension of enlightenment Siddhartha was getting. That although he was a filling up, depressing, filling up, depressing series of nothing, he wouldn't have even realized that without being a body or being present. And so the preciousness of human existence comes to the fore if you're interested in enlightenment. If you're not interested in enlightenment, it doesn't matter. But if you are interested in enlightenment, becoming enlightened, becoming aware, then you must become interested in your presence. 
And once you become interested in your presence, the Buddhist idea is you will consider it a very precious and a, and a rare occasion to have come into the world as a human being in whatever form you're, you are in. And once you start, you know, going through that, then there's lectures after lectures after lectures, but simply speaking, what we are talking about is Siddhartha's understanding of interdependency as somehow the foundation for all that there is. And this interdependency made him realize that the fact that he was a human being was no simple matter. And also, that because he was human, he had the attachments which God kept giving in his way. He knew the logic, shall I say, of overcoming attachments to overcome frustrations. He understood that clearly. And perhaps that is the reason for us having in text a term called nirvana and parinirvana. That although Siddhartha, in becoming enlightened, overcame many of the afflicting emotions and uh, hindrances that got in his way, he could not overcome his attachment to body. And when he died, he was able to no longer become attached to that. And so he entered complete extinction. So maybe that's why we have terms like nirvana and parinirvana, Buddhism. But anyway, that's my discussion on what I think the self is. It's this very complicated, you know, setup of being present in the world. So the term nothing is different than this. No. What I'm saying is Real fast. Nothing. You know? Nothing. There's nothing there. As opposed to extinction, which means something? No, no. Um, there's, if, if there's nothing, there's nothing to extinguish. know that. Then what happens? I don't know. What you can do? That's your path. As D.T. Suzuki said in one lecture given in Seattle, I heard him say, I heard you, Dr. Suzuki, please explain to me now, you've used the word enlightenment over and over again, what it's all about. You know, he said, the questioner said, if Dr. Payne was in line, how would I know it? And Dr. Suzuki sat quietly for quite a while, and he looked at the man and said, it's none of your damn business. (laughs) In other words, enlightenment is not something you reflect on somebody else, but rather, it comes back to you. So, that's the only way I can answer you. That somehow you have to take the task, your own being, 
And if you're happy with it, that's fine. If you're not, then do something about it. But if you know it and you don't want to do something about it, then go on suffering. There's various ways to answer that question. One of which is, we all have the potential to realize this. And that would be understood as good nature. Okay? It's not that we are Buddhas or something, but we all have that capacity to come to a realization of this. And I'll keep it in the context of what I spoke tonight. Any other questions? Comments? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, at those times, when, when thinking about this kind of uh, system, I get the impression, and I believe it's false, that there's no relevancy between that and the Marmita system. But what is the connection between the two, if any? The only uh, thing I could say is this: this is Majamika in practice. And Majimika, as Majimika, is in theory. That is to say, although Nagarjuna would say the exact same thing in Majimika terms, for the ordinary practitioner, the paradox, the paradox of the middle path was not something they could really grasp. So, Essentially, if, if you could do what I just said, you will come to the same outcome as Majmika. That is, sunyata, nothing. It's just that this gives the praxis to Nagarjuna. It, it, is, it, is a, it is a way in which you can resolve the paradox, so to speak. It's not a real resolution. You know, with Nagarjuna, one of the things that really results out of Nagarjuna thinking is not religion as much as logic. When this system of Asangas and Vasubandhu around the 7th and 8th century common era tried to explain itself beyond the praxis, it became and began to develop as a school of logic. So you get Dignaga and other people, and then even Chandrakirti in sort of trying to rationalize or think through Nagarjuna's thinking becomes the foundation for Buddhist logic. And after about the 8th century, or 9th century, uh, this Buddhist logic moves over to Tibet. And in India, we find basically Buddhism totally dead. Just more like museum piece. So once you start rationalizing or thinking logically about a praxis, practice, you could think it through and, and show the logic of it all, and then it, it, it becomes extinct. So Buddhism, how can I put it, 
to be a Buddhist and to try to understand Siddhartha's enlightenment requires practice. Because without it, you can't have it survive. As long as it becomes a head-heavy exercise, it's gone. You lose the quintessence or the essence of what Siddhartha meant when he says that we have to overcome attachments, emotions, and so on to clear our frustrations. You can't, you can't do that logically. You just have to do it. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, from the point of view of a therapist, there have been articles written about the kinds of people who don't do well in like Buddhist retreats, particularly people who are narcissistic. And I can't never really understood that, but if narcissists are extremely attached to this kind of bloated finish cycle or, or, or phobic about, you know, the finish part of it, it kind of makes sense if they kind of prematurely start thinking there is no self and, you know. Yeah. But the self that they produce through their thinking is not the real self. Even the real self, which they might come to as a conclusion, is not real in the sense of internally unchanged. This principle that I just talked to you about of reflection, uh, we tried at the hospital in Calgary uh, as a family therapy instead of ther uh, therapy as analysis, we used therapy as an interaction. And by using the therapy of interaction, the person who, as a family unit, because we're doing family therapy, the person who has been defined by the family as to be the problem, suddenly, once the family began to realize the interaction of this is the cause, the person just continued to be who he or she was, and the family was quite pleased I and mean, settled that, oh, you know, it was us who made him or her what that person is. And then suddenly, it was only seconds, I'm sure, we saw everybody smiling. No more problem. Okay? It was that fast. But until then, they were fighting each other, pointing at each other, and so on. And once they understood that a family is a system of interaction, just what I'm trying to tell you that a person is, once they understood that, there was no more problem. And it was amazing how the room sort of literally lit up when that was achieved. And, you know, if you ask me how it was done, I, I can only say... Everybody in the group suddenly realized they're interrelated. It was really nice to see. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah. The quote you just said about Yuki Suzuki, mm -hmm. it's none of your business, mm -hmm. which I understand, I guess, why you would say it, mm. but it tied in with what you talked about. Mm. Uh, in the tradition of Buddhism, there's obviously historically and present day people that do judge enlightenment or levels of enlightenment I guess the, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of so and so mm -hmm. immediately getting their hardships mm -hmm. and all this doctor tables uh, the gurus and the Tibet mm -hmm. the German different levels. Mm -hmm. 
the other level where that would be a sort of a meaningless task that you just provisionally can say. But in terms of that context and Shoto Shinshu and what Shinron came to the conclusion about basically that I think I maybe misinterpreted Shinron that that basically you can't do that. You're right. You can't just Yeah, I think Shinran understood that you, what a spiritual path is about is not about somebody else reflecting on somebody else and judging them, but rather self-reflection. I don't know that he would consider it a concept beyond ourselves, but it would be a concept which took interactions beyond ourselves to come to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's something way out there and it just can't be reached, but whatever you understand is not just you understanding somehow, but once you understand the context in which understanding takes place, one will quickly realize that understanding is not something you can do on your own. Yeah, and so he would, I, I, I believe, you know, we could ask Yamoka, but uh, I would believe Shima would take the position that whatever he understands, is owing to not just the fact that he can understand, but there's a great outer uh, interaction with him that's taking place. Is that okay, Haru? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the one with the qualification for responding to Shinshu types of answers, questions. So that's how I would answer you. But I think Shiran will go one step further too, that as D.T. Suzuki did, that's for me. Yeah, yeah. that means Shiran will say, All right, if I were to say it that way to you, then I speak only of myself. I cannot speak for you. Yeah. Okay? In other words, the Buddhist path is an individual path to that extent that you have to walk it. But in walking it, you begin to realize very quickly it's not you alone.
I don't think so. But I think the, if we may speak of Shinran's greatness, I think one of the greatness of Shinran is that he took this to task for himself. Seriously. We intellectually take it to task. He existentially took it to task. I think that's the difference. Like me, I could talk, you know, like heck about this stuff, but ask me to do it. <laughs> it's a different world, you know. That's why I like to see an academic safe session. Any questions? Okay. Uh, I'm just to clarify. Uh, were you saying that rebirth is not relevant in this? I mean, or that Buddha did not teach it? I, I'm just not really. I don't know what the Buddha taught. Yeah. But if he taught enlightenment to me to become free of obstructions, mm-hmm. and that which obstructs us are what we might call reductionist concrete thinking then to believe in reincarnation is a reductionist concrete thinking. Okay? Does that answer you? Yes, sir. Okay. Please join me in thanking Dr. Trouble. Thank you. So now you get to sit down. Yeah. You all get to stand up. Can I get a drink of water? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, I hope that we our paths will cross again somewhere. I have many moments of senior moments. So uh, please, if you remember me, point out that we met at this session. And just be very frank. I'll probably say, well, I don't remember. Is that right? So I'm sorry. but Thank you very much.